Pastor John's going to be teaching this morning, and I have to share something with you guys really quick. Uh, we were on an elder call yesterday, and we were talking about the snow and doing online services. And Pastor Aaron reminded us that when Pastor John preached this past summer, uh, when we were outdoors, he preached on the hottest day of the year. Then he preached on the coldest day of the year. And now he's preaching today on the snowiest day of the year. So he's been officially given the title, The Weatherman. Um, so before The Weatherman comes to bring the word from the book of Acts, I'm going to invite Myung up to read our scripture for us this morning. This is going to be the word of God. I'm going to ask you guys to join me in actually grabbing your physical Bibles at home. Open up the Bibles on your couch, on your, on your breakfast table. Um, so read with me. This is from... Acts 17, first in Korean and then in English. 인류의 모든 족쇄를 한 혈통으로 만드사 온 땅에 거하게 하시고 저희는 연대를 정하시며 거주의 경계를 하나셨습니다. 이는 사람으로 하나님을 혹 덤으로 찾아 밝혀낸 하려 하심으로 그는 우리가 각 사람에게서 멀리 떠나 계시기 아니하노다. 우리가 그를 힘입어 살며 기도하며 있으므로 너희 신이 중에서 어떤 사람들이 말과 같이 우리가 그의 소생이라 하니 이와 같이 신이 소생이 되었는 즉 신을 금이다. 은이나 돌에나 사람의 기술고 고안으로 새긴 것들과 같이 여기 것이 아니리라. Oh, that's tough. All right, this is Acts 17, verses 30 to 34. Therefore, having overlooked the times of ignorance, God now commands all people everywhere to repent, because he has set a day when he is going to judge the world in righteousness by the man he has appointed. He has provided proof of this to everyone by raising him from the dead. And when they heard about the resurrection of the dead, some began to ridicule him, but others said, we like to hear from you again about this. So Paul left their presence. However, some people joined him and believed, including Dionysus and Aeropagite, a woman named Damaris, and others with them. Thank you, Mian. Let me uh, go ahead and, and pray, and then we'll jump into the sermon here. And uh, if, if you would, just go ahead and join me uh, in praying and even uh, take a little bit of time, uh, I encourage you to take a little bit of time just to ask for God to teach you uh, and uh, reveal himself to you in a, in a new way this morning. Lord, thank you for your word. Thank you for this passage that we have in Acts 17. And um, God, I ask that you would reveal to us a very, um, very, clear evidences of places in our life that we can uh, be better at sharing your word with other people, better about uh, thinking of how to do that even before we get there with people, and a, uh, being open to a sensitivity from your spirit to, to know the right words to say to the right people at the right time. And we thank you uh, for the example of the Apostle Paul that we get to look at this morning and showing us how to do that. In your name, amen. Well, yes, like Pastor Kyle said, uh, weatherman, uh, I guess that means I am a well-seasoned pastor now. I know, I know. Pastor dad jokes are the worst. They're the worst. Um, Well, yeah, so this morning we'll be in Acts 17. Go ahead and turn there either here in person or at home, if you, uh, if you can do that. It's always good to have the Bible open in front of you as we're uh, going through the scriptures. And um, just by way of a uh, quick review here, we're in the, the book of Acts, and there's a, a main kind of theme that we have identified throughout the book of Acts, and it shows up in some way in every sermon. And that is um, that King Jesus... Um, is the enthroned, the, uh, the reigning king over the whole universe, and everyone must know. That's uh, very evident at the beginning of Acts, as Jesus, before he ascends, goes to his disciples and says that um, he will return, 
but they're to go out and tell all people about who he is and what he's done. And uh, as we see in Acts, this happens in terms of concentric circles, first in Jerusalem, then Judea, then Samaria, then the ends of the earth. And here in Acts chapter 17, we are solidly getting into the ends of the earth. Paul has uh, left uh, the Jewish base and uh, certainly the base of Judaism and is now moving into the ends of the earth to share this good news, to share this gospel with everyone that he encounters. He had a desire to pioneer in gospel ministry, and, and certainly that's what we see in Acts 17. Um, I have a slide that may help you a little bit to see this, uh, but in Acts 17, uh, this is Paul's second missionary journey. And in his second journey, he'll travel up uh, through Syria, around over to the Greek side of the world, and then back down to Jerusalem. And this week, we're up in the, uh, uh, the top left there of the map, where Paul goes through, uh, just passes through Philippi, then Amphipolis, Apollonia, and into Thessalonica. And in Acts 17, Paul will visit three cities in quick succession in order to uh, share the gospel in an itinerant sort of way. He really blitzes through these cities. And um, uh, it's important for us to know that because I believe what Luke is telling us as he describes, as he narrates what Paul is doing, um, that he's, he's showing us a picture. He's showing us an example of what it looks like to share the gospel, or to say it a different way, to evangelize in a very quick form and fashion. And so Paul will move through these three cities, uh, Thessalonica, Berea, and Athens, and he'll do it so fast that we get to see uh, what, it, what it can look like to, on the go, in the moment, on the spot, be able to share the gospel and then move on with the rest of your life. I think for many of us, when we think of sharing the gospel or we think of evangelism, we often think of uh, these kind of times in our life where we, we really need to gear up and prepare and have studied and know the answers to all the theological questions um, and that can be well and good to do so, but at the same time, in our own lives, what we see is sometimes God just puts us in a certain place at a certain time with certain people, and we need to respond. And so this morning, we get to see a picture of what that looks like. And uh, one of the main reasons that we, we see that this is um, so itinerant in such a short span is that Paul, on this second missionary journey, will actually spend three years traversing the ancient world, and he spends a year and a half in Corinth, which is next week. Opposed to the year and a half, we see that Paul, in a matter of weeks, could be, um, could be a month and a half, could be a little bit more than that, but Paul spends a short amount of time in these three cities, and so we get to see a really great picture of what it looks like to evangelize so quickly here in Acts. And um, putting all that together, I think we gather a main point for today, and it's this. The main point, or the main idea, is that if the good news is good, then it must be shared. If the good news is good, then it must be shared. And we have some opposition to this in our culture. We'll see that uh, in comparison with Paul here in a little bit. But that is the, that's the premise If we have something good to share and we don't share it, is that good? The answer is no, of course. And Paul understands this, and so it is at the the motive of what he does. And, of course, at the center of the examples that he gives us. And we can see uh, a few lessons in this passage passage that I would like to pull out uh, related to sharing this good news. And the first lesson that we see... Uh, is that sharing the gospel involves reason. Sharing the gospel involves reason. I'll go ahead and read Acts 17, 1 through 9 for you. After this, they passed through, so Paul and party, Amphipolis, Apollonia, came to Thessalonica, where there was a Jewish synagogue. As usual, Paul went into the synagogue and on three Sabbath days reasoned with them from the scriptures, explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Messiah to suffer and arise from the dead. This Jesus, 
I am proclaiming to you is the Messiah. Some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, including a large number of Greek fearing, uh, God-fearing Greeks, as well as a number of the leading women. As this chapter, chapter opens, we see that Paul uh, is, of course, making his way around the Aegean coast. And as he does that, he, he follows his normal uh, pattern, his MO. Whenever he goes into a new city, the first thing he does is go to the Jewish audience first. Um, and that is because this is the overall pattern that we see in Scripture. And Paul surmised this and says, I'm going to do the same thing. First, the word of God goes to the Jews, and then if they reject it, or second, it then goes to the Greeks. And he follows this pattern all throughout uh, his ministry, and we see it clearly in uh, the first city here in Thessalonica, and then again in Berea. Um, and as Paul does that, we land on a key word in this passage, and that is reasoned. In verse 2, it says that Paul reasoned with them. This word is a big concept in Acts. It actually occurs uh, 13 times in the New Testament on the whole, and 10 of those are in the book of Acts, which tells us that the concept of reasoning, of of talking to people, of dialoguing with them about the gospel is really, it's a key component of Paul's ministry and therefore a key uh, component of evangelism. And there are, uh, this, is, this is good for the, uh, the old uh, grammarian English class here, but there's three participles that come off of this. First, he says that he, it says that he reasoned with them and he did that in um, a certain kind of way, explaining, proving, and proclaiming are the, uh, the words that come up. And what we can gather from that is that Paul is, he's not just uh, standing up to argue with people. He's not just trying to uh, give them some information and then have them move on with the rest of their life. The, uh, the original word here uh, has two components to it. One is thinking different things with oneself, or another way to say it is mingling thought for thought. Uh, it's an internal dialogue. It's an inward dialogue where Paul is uh, teaching about Jesus. He's sharing the gospel, and he's doing so in such a way that um, for himself and for his listeners, he's wanting them to wrestle with the truth that he's saying. There's an internal dialogue that happens. The second thing about the word is actually the opposite, um, that it means to converse or discourse or argue and discuss. It's, it's the outward element of it. So what we see in Paul's ministry and certainly in these towns is that for him it was core to go to uh, the Jews and then to the Greeks. But as he did, regardless of who he's talking to, his objective is to reason with them about the truth of the gospel. He wants them to have an inward and an outward dialogue about it. And um, this is actually something that's, that is uh, pretty contrary to our culture. Um, I don't know about you, but for me, when I hear the word evangelism, I, uh, I don't have the best things come to mind. Uh, when I hear evangelism, I often think of people coming to my door on a Saturday morning, knocking on the door and bothering, bothering me. Um, I think of flannel boards. <laughs> I also think of, um, I also uh, think of just an annoyance and uh, maybe somebody trying to actually coerce me into thinking or believing what they believe and what they believe is cheesy and outdated. That, those are the first things that come to mind for me with the word evangelism, but it's not like the word is actually bad and the, it's not like the concept is actually bad. Um, it's not an exclusively Christian concept either. In the ancient world, what we see is uh, evangelism was just a way of saying that somebody would share the good news. So if there's a, uh, a battle and a new king is victorious, somebody, an evangelist, would run at the front of the, of the army proclaiming to all the cities and everyone within ear reach that there is a new king. There is good news. The new king has overcome and conquered. And um, so Christians in the first century took this word and say, this is what we're saying. This is the good news. There is a good news to be shared, and that's what Paul's doing. So I don't think we have to totally throw out the word evangelism. 
Um, but we do probably need a reshaping of it for our day and age. And I'll give you one example of that. Uh, a couple years ago, the Barna Group, uh, they do a lot of, lot of uh, statistics and uh, sociological uh, data, uh, came out with a study, and the study was that half of millennials, okay, so I may, I may pick on somebody here a little bit, um, half of, yes, I, I kind of just make the curve on that, uh, depending on your uh, report, half of millennials say evangelism is wrong. Okay, here's what uh, the report says. Millennials, in particular, feel equipped to share their faith with others. For instance, almost three quarters say that they know how to respond when someone raises questions about faith, 73%. And that they are gifted at sharing their faith with other people, 73%. This is higher than any other generational group. Gen Xers, 66. Boomers, 59. Elders, 56. Despite this, many millennials are unsure about the actual practice of evangelism. Almost half of millennials, 47%, agree, at least somewhat, that it is wrong to share one's personal beliefs with someone of a different faith in hopes that they will one day share the same faith. And here's what uh, the, the president of the Barna Group says. Cultivating deep, steady, resilient Christian conviction concludes, uh, he concludes, it's difficult in a wor- world where you do you and don't criticize anyone's life choices and emotivism, the feelings first priority that our culture makes a way of life, as much as ever, evangelism isn't just about saving the unsaved, but reminding ourselves that this stuff matters, that the Bible is trustworthy and that Jesus changes everything. What the Barnard Group is pointing out there is really an inconsistency in terms of belief. If three-quarters of millennials say that they are better gifted, better equipped, and better trained sharing the gospel than any generation in history uh, that we can measure, and at the same time, nearly half of millennials say that they believe that they shouldn't actually share that good news, then there is a major disconnect And uh, it's not simply for millennials, of course, this goes outside those bounds. But what it shows us is that as a society, we have bought into the assumption that it's not good for us to uh, share our beliefs or intermingle our beliefs or our convictions or our thoughts even with someone else. And beyond that, it's not just even sharing those reasonings, as Paul does, but it's actually explicitly sharing our reasons, reasonings so that other people would believe what we believe. And we see clearly in our culture that that has become taboo. If you have actually tried sharing the gospel and people will say, well, wait a second, are you trying to convince me of something? Are you trying to, are you trying to uh, reason with me so that I actually believe what you do? How offensive. That is a, uh, a normal response in our culture, but contrary to our culture, we see this is what is driving the Apostle Paul through city after city after city. He deeply hopes and he deeply wants other people to believe what he believes about Jesus. And so what's the result of this? In Acts 17, 5 through 9, it says this, But the Jews became jealous, and they brought together some wicked men from the marketplace, formed a mob, and started a riot in the city. Attacking Jason's house, they searched for them to bring them out to the public assembly. When they did not find them, they dragged Jason and some of the brothers before the city officials, shouting, These men who have turned the world upside down have come here too. And Jason welcomed them. They were all acting contrary to Caesar's decrees, saying, There is another king, Jesus. The crowd and city officials who heard these things were upset. After taking security bonds from Jason and others, they released them. Well, you have to say for the Thessalonians here, um, great job. You understand what we're doing. You understand what we're saying. So often, uh, this point is missed, but what Paul has been saying this whole time is, there is another king, and you need not worship Caesar 
In fact, it is wrong for you to worship Caesar. Jesus is worthy of all your adoration, all your affection, and all your praise. And the Thessalonians get this, and it turns the city upside down, contrary to their claims about Paul and company. What we need to point out here is that evangelism does involve reasoning. We see that very clearly with Paul. But a good application point for us as believers these days is that even though evangelism does involve reasoning, it should never involve riots. Should never involve riots. Revolutions may be a different thing, not getting into just war theory this morning, but what we do see from the Apostle Paul and company is the claims are that they're the ones who are actually causing the civil disobedience. They're the ones that are turning the city into an uproar. And at the same time, what we see is actually Paul and company don't do that, do they? It is the response from the people that hate the gospel that end up causing so much turmoil to happen in the city. So for us as believers, we need to keep this in mind that as we share the gospel, we're not trying to incite rebellion. We're not trying to harm people. We're not trying to actually force other people to believe what we believe. That is not what Christianity is about. No, instead it is reasoning, arguing, persuading, trying to convince, but at the same time, totally allowing people to make their own choices. This is what Paul experienced, and this is the kind of life that he lived. Back to the main point. If the good news of Jesus is good, then it must be shared. This is a deep conviction for Paul. And we see that sharing the gospel involves engaging in an inward and outward dialogue with other people for the explicit purpose that they would believe what we believe. The second lesson that we learned from Paul here uh, continues on, and I'll just reference an overview for you of the the next town uh, and hit it a little bit later, but Paul does the same thing. He goes on to the next city, to Berea. He shares the gospel, first with the Jews, then with the God-fearers, the Greeks, and uh, has a great response, and people believe him. A church is started, and then uh, of course, the, the uh, rebels from Thessalonica follow him, and then he is escorted out of the city to save his own skin and sent to Athens. And this leads us to the second point that we see this morning, in, uh, starting in verse 16, and that is that in this passage we see evangelism, that evangelism doesn't only involve the mind, doesn't only involve reasoning, which is something that we have to do, but it also involves uh, a strange phrase I'll share with you, heart-gut. Heart-gut. Maybe uh, it's strange enough that it'll stick with you, but um, let me explain what, uh, why I say that. Starting in verse 16, it says, While Paul was waiting for them in Athens, he was deeply distressed when he saw that the city was full of idols. So he reasoned, again, same word, in the synagogue with the Jews and those who worship God, as well as in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. Some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers also debated with him. Some said, what is this ignorant show-off trying to say? That phrase is a little difficult to translate. It pretty much gives you the idea of uh, some commentators say a, a third-rate journalist. Who's this person who's uh, literally in the Greek, pecking at seeds, pecking at ideas. He has just little, little pieces of knowledge. So what's this, tro- this uh, show off trying to say? And others replied, he seems to be a preacher of foreign deities because he's telling the good news about Jesus and the resurrection. They told him and brought him to the Areopagus and said, may we learn about this new teaching you are presenting. Because what you say sounds strange to us, and we want to know what these things mean. Now, all the Athenians and the foreigners residing there spent their time on nothing else but telling or hearing something new. So we have the professional uh, experts on, on uh, theory, gossip, and knowledge. And they 
do not um, resonate with what Paul is saying. And they think on some, lo- some level, oh, he's saying something new, so let's hear him out. Uh, and before we get to what Paul actually says, what we need to see here is that uh, sharing the gospel involves heart gut. And what I mean by that is um, this word uh, that shows that Paul is deeply distressed. He's deeply distressed as he comes to Athens. And some different translations say it differently, that his spirit was being provoked within him. That's what the NASB says, or the KJV says that his spirit was stirred in him. There's um, something about this word that is, is uh, really mixed. It's a, it's a mixed bag of emotions. A mixed bag of emotions. The word... Um, only shows up twice in the whole New Testament. And the idea that it has with it is that there is, there is a, a, some kind of sharpness to it. There's an acute aspect to this sensation. It's not like a, a dull ache or pain. It's a very sharp um, feeling, a sharp emotion. And it involves a mix of things. It, it involves um, feelings of being irritated, angry, provoked, exasperated. Uh, There's a real inward turmoil that happens here that we see from Paul. The the second place that the word occurs is in 1 Corinthians 13, which if you are any what familiar with church or weddings, then you know that that's the love chapter. Um, And it's, it's the word to say that love is not easily provoked. The idea uh, that Paul writes there is that, um, it's not a wrong thing for love to be provoked. It's a wrong thing for it to be easily provoked. If at any point in your relationships with other people, the smallest off comment or the smallest glance uh, turns into this, this deep inward turmoil for you, then what Paul's saying in 1 Corinthians is something's not right. That's not the way that love works. But on the flip side of that, what we see for him here in Athens is that he experiences the right way of being provoked. Paul, in Athens, is walking around the city. We get the impression from, uh, uh, from verse 16 that while he's waiting for them in Athens, he's by himself, he's deeply distressed, and he saw the city was full of idols. So we can, we can deduce that Paul is actually walking through this very large city in the, in the Greek world, and... What he sees as he walks through the city just breaks his heart. Another way that we might um, say this instead of heart gut is that it, it, it cuts him to the heart. He's grieved over it. He's grieved over what he sees. And so what did he see? He walks through Athens and he sees idol after idol after idol. And not just, not just stone, not just uh, metal or wood shaped into these um, dumb and deaf idols, what he sees is cult worship going on. He walks by the Parthenon and then he sees an entire side of it dedicated to cult prostitution. He walks by other idols and he sees uh, sacrifice, whether that's sacrificing animals or sacrificing money or food or gifts or other resources. And uh, a commenter of the day says this about Athens. He says that uh, it is easier to find a god than a man in Athens. Thousands and thousands of, of little idols set up all over the city. The biggest and the most notable uh, gods or idols got their own temple and got their own platform. But we're not talking about just a few idols here. We're talking about idols everywhere you go. You cannot look anywhere in Athens and not see an idol set up. And people around that idol worshiping it. Burning incense or offering food. All the way from the center to the outside of the city, Athens is a place that is thick with idol worship. And Paul walks around this and he has has this heart-gut reaction where he says what I think most of us say when we experience this word. No! Why? 
If you ever have gotten the phone call of a, a loved one being in the hospital or being in some dire straits, that's what this feels like. The first response is, how can this happen? Why is this happening? So we see that Paul isn't just relating to sharing the gospel on this very intellectual uh, platform where he's talking about ideas and a transaction of ideas. He's talking about something that is at the core of his being. And not just for him, but for other people. He is deeply grieved and in turmoil that other people don't know and worship the one true God. And so he responds. And he has the opportunity to speak to these people. He's invited to talk with them. And so they bring him to uh, Mars Hill or to the Areopagus where uh, the Aristarchy of the day sat and they would hear and, and actually make legal and religious judgments. They say, Paul, come talk to us. And here's what he says. Paul stood in the middle of the Areopagus and said, People of Athens, I see that you are extremely religious in every, as- every respect. For as I was passing through and observing the objects of your worship, I even found an altar on which was inscribed to an unknown God. Therefore, what you worship in ignorance, this I proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it, he is Lord of heaven and earth. Does not live in shrines made by hands. Neither is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives everyone life and breath and all things. From one man, he has made every nationality to live over the whole earth and has determined their appointed times and the boundaries of where they live. He did this so that they might seek God. And perhaps they might reach out and find him, though he is not far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being, as even some of your own poets have said. For we are also his offspring. Since we are God's offspring, then, we shouldn't think that the divine nature is like gold or silver or stone, an image fashioned by human art and imagination. Paul here preaches... Arguably, a lot of commentators say, the best sermon of his life. And it is eloquent, it is rich, it is, uh, it is informed. This is an incredible message, an incredible sermon. And, and beyond just the eloquence of it, do you hear what he's saying? Pointing out the, the heartbrokenness that he has. While you worship in ignorance, I proclaim to you that God, he's not served by human hands. From one man, he made every nationality. And he did this so that at their appointed times and boundaries where they live, they might reach out to him. The idea uh, in, in Greek is that they're groping in the dark. And this is, this is something that uh, Paul is actually turning, turning the phrase onto them where they Some people say that he's picking at seeds here, that he has no idea what he's really talking about. He says, well, actually, this one God, this unknown God that you have, um, you're ignorant about him. I'm not the ignorant one. You're the ignorant one. You don't even know what his name is. And he says beyond that, that he he has made everything and he's put you in just the right time, in just the right place, so that you might be able to find him. And the conclusion to what Paul says here is that there's no way, there's absolutely no way that they, even groping in the dark, could ever find him. They have thousands upon thousands on thousands of idols in this city, and not one of them is really right. Not a single one. And so as he's um, preaching to them and sharing the gospel with them, what we need to keep in mind here is that as he does so, it involves his heart gut. And here's a quote from Spurgeon, I think, that just nails what Paul felt. And uh, side note, this is actually a uh, recent gift for me from my grandmother, sent by my sister. And it is an original uh, sermon print out, uh, handout from uh, Charles Spurgeon. So, not spilling coffee on this one. 
Spurgeon says, related to soul winning in his sermon, we win by love. We win hearts for Jesus by love, by sympathy with their sorrow, by anxiety lest they should perish, by pleading with God for them with all our hearts that they should not be left to die unsaved, by pleading for them, for God, that for their spiritual wooing and winning of hearts for the Lord Jesus, and if you would learn that way, if you would learn the way, you must ask God to give you a tender heart and a sympathizing soul. I believe that much of the secret of soul winning lies in having bowels of compassion and having spirits that can be touched with the feeling of human infirmities. And he kind of ends this section by saying that soul saving requires a heart that beats hard against the ribs. Soul saving requires a heart that beats hard against the ribs. Certainly we see this in Paul in his life and in his ministry, and it should be a part of ours as well. And there's, there's a real uh, a winning, a real persuasiveness, persuasiveness to this kind of talk by Paul, isn't it? it? It's not like he's just saying, here are doctrinal truths. Here's good theology that you should appropriate. He's saying, please hear this. And by extension, I think that that is true for us this morning. That if you are hearing this sermon, uh, if you're in person or watching online, then I can say the same thing and you can say the same thing Paul said to other people. That God has put you in just the right place at just the right time to hear this good news. You see this response from Paul where he says the no and the why, I think is working out into his sermon where he says that I know why now. I have received an education that is higher than most of the people in the world. I received a pedigree. I know the Jewish Bible in and out. I was taught by the best teacher in the Jewish world. I have a dual citizenship. I understand. I understand the modern philosophies of the day. I understand the Stoic mindset. Paul, Paul understood all of these things. And for him at this moment, walking through the city, I think, I think what was going through his mind was, God put me here. And by extension, I, I say for you, if you hear this now, you're hearing the gospel because God wants you to believe. You hear the gospel so that you might believe. And for those of us who, who do believe that we need to recognize that God has put us in certain places with certain people at certain times so that we would, like Paul here, understand it and say, God put me here. One of, one of um, my favorite memories of uh, sharing the gospel in China is that I was sitting down at a table with a guy um, at a restaurant, and then it clicked. Same thing clicked for me. I said, God sent me. Like God sent me here to sit at this table in this restaurant in Nowheresville in China to share the good news with you about Jesus Christ. And it's like understanding broke through to him. Really? I've thought about God before, but I never knew who he was. And God has put us all as believers in that situation. Last thing here is that uh, we need to keep in mind, Paul has a certain audience, and he speaks to his audience differently depending on whom they are. For the Jews, we see that there was a prevailing view of uh, the Messiah during his day, which was the, uh, the Messiah actually has to be two people. There's the suffering servant, Isaiah 53, who's the Messiah, and there's also the Psalm 2 Messiah, which is the ruling and reigning king over all things. And the, the prevailing view of the Jewish people during the day was these have to be two different people. And so as Paul's reasoning, he says to that audience, let me prove to you from the scriptures who the Messiah is. When Paul gets to Athens, he doesn't say Messiah one time. Instead, he begins with creation. He begins with their poets. He knows the parlance of the day. And he uses it with an Old Testament rooting to say, this, who God, this is who God is. And we need to do the same. Sharing the gospel involves heart gut. Believers must deeply care about the people that they are sharing the gospel with to speak truthfully. Third lesson 
Paul teaches us is that Paul, in sharing the gospel, not only involves reason, not only involves the center of who he is, this heart gut, but also involves Jesus. And you may say, well, of course it involves Jesus. I mean, what are we doing here? But it's so easy for us to miss. I fear that we can miss it every day. That sharing the gospel is centered on and involves Jesus. We have to keep Jesus at the center as we share the good news. For, for Paul, as he talks to the Jewish context, he says all the reasoning is about Jesus, the Messiah. And in the secular context, he's going to talk about how God has appointed this man over all things, judge over all things, and resurrected from the dead. Let's go ahead and read in verse 30. Therefore, having overlooked the times of ignorance, God now commands all people everywhere to repent. Talk about speaking boldly. Because he has set a day when he is going to judge the world in righteousness by the man he has appointed. He has proved, he has provided proof of this to everyone by raising him from the dead. When they heard about the resurrection from the dead, some began to ridicule him and others said, we'd like to hear from you about this again. So Paul left their presence. However, some people joined him and believed, including Dionysius, the Areopagite, a woman named Demarius, and others with them. What we see here is that Paul does not pull his punches. He probably gives the best sermon of his life, extremely eloquent, and that eloquence does not lack biblical sobriety. He jumps straight to the point. You need to repent. The gospel call includes a call to repentance. And Paul provides that for us. And not only that, but also the resurrection. It would have been very easy, very, very easy for Paul in this situation to say, you need to repent. You need to believe in Jesus and say nothing about the resurrection. In fact, that would have been the easiest thing for Paul to do because the people that he is speaking to are two groups, two schools of thought mainly, um, and neither one of them believed in life after death, necessarily. Neither one of them had a framework of resurrection whatsoever. In fact, they scoff at it, as we see. And so Paul, speaking to the Epicureans and the Stoics, says something that is, that is totally contrary to their way of life and thinking. But he doesn't not say it. And we have to do the same. We can't pull our punches just because we don't think people will accept it. We'd be as eloquent as we can, and at the same time we say, this is what the Bible says. This is what God says. This is what we must believe. The Epicureans, just to give you a, a brief uh, synopsis of them, Epicureans were essentially people that, um, that enjoyed all that life had to offer. Their working philosophy was enjoy life because that's all you have. Sounds a little familiar, doesn't it? YOLO, you only live once. <laughs> Epicurean philosophy. The Stoics, on the other hand, said, no, don't do that. Because if you do that, you'll actually miss out on um, the more substantive things in life. You'll miss living according to the order that the world actually runs in. And so the Epicureans essentially um, said, let's enjoy life. And the Stoics said, let's endure life. And to both of these groups, Paul, Paul eloquently addresses both of them uh, with points that they would say, oh, yes, I totally believe that as an Epicurean, or I completely believe that as a Stoic. But at the same time, he jumps in and says, I'm going to give you something both of you don't believe. And you need to think about it. The resurrection the resurrection is a theme that happens regardless of Paul's context. Jews or Greeks, he is bringing up the resurrection, and it's something that we need to believe and hold on to. And although Paul talks differently in different places, we see that he does, he does call them to repentance and speak truthfully about who Jesus is and what he did. So this morning, um, in keeping the gospel first and 
and uh, involving Jesus in our gospel presentations or in our evangelism. Um, I just wonder, it's one of the discussion questions, but can you actually share the gospel? That's something that we, we need to be able to uh, think about as believers. We need to be able to articulate the great truths of the gospel. Jesus coming, suffering, dying on the cross, raising, ascending, and then coming again. Welcoming us to God and giving us new life. And so in all this, what we see is that there is a, a main point, and that is that if the good news of Jesus is good, then it must be shared. And we, we see that it must be shared in that involving our reason, our, our center of who we are, and Jesus. There's a real temptation, I feel like, for believers to focus on the first two, in some sense, without actually including Jesus. And then for a different group of Christians, uh, the focus can easily be just Jesus. Well, this is who Jesus is. If you don't believe that, then that's on you. I I don't need to argue you into it. Or uh, here's the the truth about Jesus and who he is and what he did, but I don't really feel anything for you about it. What we see with Paul here is it's a, it's a holistic method of evangelism. He will expend all of his mental energy. He will be deeply emotionally invested. And he says, Jesus is at the center of this. And we see, of course, for Paul that this is very much what he experienced, that Jesus was the proto-evangelist. Jesus came, knocked him off of his donkey, and said, I'm the risen Lord. And all throughout the Gospels, we see Jesus acting this way, that he is sitting down with people, reasoning with them about the Scriptures. What did they say when he would stand up and teach in the synagogue? No one teaches like this man. No one has authority like this. I mean, the scribes and Pharisees don't do this. And at the same time, we see this tender-hearted humility with Jesus, sitting with children, sitting with women who in the ancient world certainly didn't have a, as high of a status as men. Jesus is right there, tender-hearted and razor-sharp logic to present himself, to say, believe in me. When the Son of Man is lifted up, you will believe. So we need to keep all those things in our evangelism. And here are a number of takeaways uh, that I would offer to us, and I'll just run through them very quickly. Number one, Christians must Reason with people about the good news to share the good news. That is part of it. We have to engage in reasoning with people. It is not enough for us just to say, here is some information. Take this track. That may have some value in it, and God may use it to do some good, but we are called to reason with people to share the good news. Second, Christians reason but never riot, like I said. That's not the way Christians act. Third, Christians will receive opposition in evangelism. We didn't spend a whole lot of time in the Berea passage, um, but what we do see is that whether it's Thessalonica or Berea or Athens, there is some form of opposition that always comes with sharing the gospel. So we needn't, as believers, think that everything will go smooth all the time, that every reception of the gospel will be without opposition. It will have it. Four, Christians must deeply care about people and the relationship with God, which is what we talked about. That is an indispensable part of evangelism. Five, Christians confront idolatry. Paul did not sidestep the idolatry issue. He jumped straight in and addressed it. Six, Christians consider their audience. Like we said, some people need to hear the gospel differently. And it is the duty of the Christian to jump in and do that. Six, Christians consider, or their audience. Seven, Christians keep Jesus at the center of the good news. It's all got to be about Jesus, not a personality. Not about our good works. Eight, Christians call for repentance. We have to make that a part of how we share the gospel. 
Nine Christians cling to the resurrection. This is our hope. As ludicrous as it may seem to the world, we hang everything on the resurrection. If Jesus did not rise from the dead, we're doing this for nothing. All of our good works, all of our belief, everything matters nothing. Paul said the same thing. Those are the nine takeaways. And as, as we close here, I would just like to give you a word of consolation. A word of consolation. If you see this in the life of the Apostle Paul, and you think, wow, I could never do that. That's not, that's not what I can ever do. I'm not eloquent. I'm not persuasive. Not any of those things. Then what we need to keep in mind here is what happened right after Athens. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 2, 1 through 5, just listen, listen to him speak here. When I came to you, brothers and sisters, announcing the mystery of God to you, I did not come with brilliance of speech or wisdom. I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. I came to you in weakness, in fear, and in much trembling. My speech and my preaching were not with persuasive words of wisdom, but with a demonstration of the Spirit's power, so that your faith might not be based on human wisdom, but on God's power. May it be so with us. May it be so with us. The ironic part of Paul's best sermon is that it only, only produced maybe two or three converts. Versus in Berea, a back, backwater town, a day's journey away from some bigger places, he actually had the most fruit out of these three cities. Don't think that in sharing your gospel, if you don't have these crowds of people believing in Jesus, that you're unsuccessful. Or don't think just because you have a platform that God will do much with that. God often does the most with things that are completely outside of our authority, completely outside of what the world would consider wise or successful. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for this example of the Apostle Paul. God, would you help us all to put these truths down in our hearts and consider them like having this inward and outward dialogue to uh, use the time even that we have snowed in this week to think about who you want us to uh, share the gospel with. And Lord, we ask that you would encourage us that no matter how weak or how unequipped or unprepared we may feel that it is the message of your cross, it is your power that actually saves people and not our eloquence. We ask all these things in your son's name. Amen.